Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 20. I'll read the first six verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for for your word, which you've given us life and light. Grant us the Spirit's help now that we may be humble before your word, that we would have ears to hear it. Indeed, Father, that we would be able to understand and perceive this word that you have given this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain conceptions or misconceptions that we have about various aspects of the Bible which have been passed down to us and which may even, we may even take for granted as being true. For example, in John chapter 14 and verse 2, the New King James translates Jesus telling his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, when we hear the word mansion, we think of a palatial home usually owned by those who are extremely wealthy. You know, the types of homes uh, we sometimes find around Williamson County. And you may have heard someone say that when they, um, when they, that when they get to heaven, they hope that their mansion has a swimming pool, you know, or something like that. Well, the use of uh, mansions comes from Tyndale's translation of the, the Bible. And the Old English used mansion to mean dwelling place and not necessarily a palatial dwelling. The word that's used here seems to have some connections with a word used throughout John's gospel that refers to someone abiding or remaining with Jesus and with the Father. So in the Father's house, there are many abiding places, places to remain with the Father and the Son. And in the context of what Jesus goes on to say, we should understand that He is the abiding place, which then has further application to the church. And how does He go to prepare for that? Through His death and resurrection. So sorry, not sorry, to burst your bubble, but Jesus doesn't go to heaven to start building giant houses with built-in water slides, game rooms, uh, home theaters, bowling alleys, or whatever. Or we have the text from Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 regarding the birth of Jesus. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, was Jesus born in a cow stall? Was he born in a stable? No, he was born in a house, but in the part of the house where the animals were also kept and fed because there was no place for, for them in the more properly translated guest room. Of course, we have hundreds of years of thinking that there was no room in the local inn. And some of our favorite Christmas hymns and carols reflect this idea that Jesus was essentially born in a barn, but that's mistaken. And to undo all of that thinking in our minds would be pretty challenging. 
Similarly, we automatically think that there were three kings, three magi from the east, which mainly comes from tradition. But the text doesn't explicitly tell us there were three. And although there were three gifts, that doesn't necessarily mean there were only three kings or three magi. Again, our Christmas carols uh, lend us to think that there were three kings, and so that's the natural default of our thinking. So what does all of this have to do with our text in Exodus 20? Well, listen to verse 1 again. And God spoke all these words, saying... What did God speak? Words, and not explicitly commands, or exclusively commands. Yes, those commands are words... And there are commands here, arguably 10 of them, but we don't have only commands in verses 2 through 17. There are also promises, threats, and theological statements. And maybe you're thinking, well, don't be so overly pedantic, but what we have here are the 10 words, the Decalogue. And we'll have a fuller-orbed view of this text if we think more in these terms, if we think more of these as the 10 words. Last week, we noted the uniqueness of this occasion, God speaking to all of Israel, that there's not another moment quite like it. We also considered the text, uh, the context of grace in which these words come, as we're told in, in verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who caused you to come out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. The commandments were not given as the means for salvation, as the method for salvation, but are the stipulations of the covenant, the way of blessing, the way of life, for not only God's people, but even all of humanity. And all these words were given in a specific context when Israel was constituted as a nation. These commandments, these commands, these words reflect the character of God as they reveal Him. They also direct all of humanity who bear God's image in the way that is truly worth living, in the way of true freedom and blessing that comes through obedience. As Protestants, we follow the traditional biblical structure and ordering of the Ten Commandments, just as we have it. There's some discussion about two tables of law and how those are broken out. The first table can be summarized as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second table will be loving your neighbor as yourself. And there's some variation here among, uh, among churches, but the traditional structure lists um, commandments 1 through 4 as love of God and 5 through 10 as love of neighbor. That's fine though I'm more inclined to view 1 through 5 as constituting the first table, and then 6 through 10 as the second. Now, why put the fifth commandment into the first table? Well, hopefully I'll speak to it more when we get there, but the case can be made that that 1 through 5 establish authorities set in place by God, and 6 through 10 have more to do with quality of relationships. And yes, there is a relational aspect to the fifth commandment, So it is somewhat transitional. But the command has to do with showing honor, which is also principally the case in commands 1 through 4. Well, let's begin to make our way through these few verses that are before us. And while we'll hardly exhaust them and their implications, I trust we'll, we'll, we'll get at the heart of them and come to a deeper understanding of the bearing they have for us still. The first word, verses 2 through 3. I am Yahweh your God who caused you to come out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery, not have to you other gods before my face. Now, who does does God identify himself as? Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? Well, he's the covenant keeper. 
He's the one who made the promises to the patriarchs, who revealed himself to Moses at Sinai, displayed his power in Egypt and at the Red Sea, and has provided for Israel in the wilderness. And he's not just Yahweh, but Yahweh, your God, which also has covenantal implications. You know, besides a nation being formed at Sinai, there's also a wedding taking place. Yahweh is the groom and Israel is the bride. And Yahweh has rescued Israel. He saved the damsel in distress. And this is the wedding ceremony. And the commands, the words, are the vows. And what did he do? He brought them out of the land of Egypt. What was Egypt like? Well, it became a place of oppression and slavery and hardship. But what was Egypt like when Jacob and his family first moved there when Joseph was running the country? Genesis 47, 6, Pharaoh speaking to Joseph. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Israel was settled in the best of the land. But even more, what does Genesis 13, 10 teach us about Egypt? And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Egypt is compared to the Garden of Eden. What flowed out of Eden? A river, which then split into four rivers. Where is Israel going to? To the promised land, which is described as what? A land flowing with milk and honey. See, arguably, that's better than Eden. Why? Because milk is glorified water. What else is glorified water? Wine. And Israel is going to inherit a land of vines, which means grapevines, which means wine. So originally, Israel had a good situation in Egypt. But what happened? Well, Israel started to serve the gods of Egypt, as we find out at the end of Joshua. And so God disciplined his people. Nevertheless, Yahweh has brought Israel out of the house of slavery. And he's arguably brought her to his house in the wilderness. It's not built yet. That comes later with the building of the tabernacle and it's a portable house. But Israel has gone gone from being a slave in Pharaoh's house to a bride in Yahweh's house. It's, It's a Cinderella story, isn't it? So the command comes, you shall have no other gods. Now, who are these gods? The word being used is Elohim, which we often correctly translate as God in the proper context. How should we understand the term here? Well, there are basically two options, human beings or angels, but more specifically, those who've been placed in positions of authority. If memory serves me correctly, there are some who contend that gods could refer to fallen angels or demons, and then they become some of the false gods in the ancient world. Uh, interesting to think about, but not necessarily verified by the Bible itself. So what does Scripture tell us about these gods? Psalm 58, verses 1 and 2. Do you indeed increase what is right, you gods, Elohim? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Now the reference here, given the rest of the context of the psalm, indicates these gods are wicked human rulers. Similarly, in Psalm 82, verses 1 and 2, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So God is upset with how these rulers, how these judges have been oppressing the poor. 
Later we read, he set them in place, but is going to bring judgment upon them. So Yahweh commands that there aren't to be any other powers, other rulers of any kind, that are to be what? Before me, or more literally, before my face. And this ties the whole command together, because the me, or the my, is Yahweh. So verse 2 is also part of the first word, and not just verse 3 alone. What's the imagery here? Well, being in someone's face, you know, is is rarely a respectful action. You know, when a manager of a baseball team gets in the umpire's face, it's it's never a pleasant circumstance. You know, they're not there exchanging recipes. No, the manager's angry or upset about something, and when he gets up in the umpire's face, it's not out of respect. So to bring another god before the face of Yahweh is a direct insult. It's to put that God, that judge, that ruler, that authority on par with God to treat them as equals, which is insulting and disrespectful to Yahweh. And this doesn't mean that so long as Yahweh is number one, then it doesn't matter if you also give a nod to Baal or Molech. No, that's not the point. Yahweh isn't like Jesus as the chief God of a pantheon. I'm sorry, he's not like Zeus as the chief God of a pantheon of gods. No, he's unique and his singular supremacy is to be maintained. There are gods in the sense already mentioned. And who put those in place? Who puts rulers and authorities in place? God, the only God. No human judge or authority nor any philosophies or ideas that are contrived by man are to be placed before God. And to be clear, perhaps to state what's obvious, all false gods are man-made and are fashioned after man's image. Again, go back to the Greek and Roman pantheons and the gods have plenty of human characteristics. Or consider Elijah's taunting of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, saying they need to cry out louder because he might be going to the bathroom on a journey or asleep and needs to be awakened. The true and living God, the only God, the God of the Bible is nothing like that and he rightly demands exclusive allegiance. The focus is on God's ultimate and absolute authority in all of life, including worship and all other spheres of activity. That's what's encompassed here in this first word. And as that brings us then to the second word, before we begin to look at the details, we should immediately make the connection between sin and idolatry, and that the essence of sin is idolatry. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin somewhat famously stated that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. So when man is turned away from God, he generates idols. Consider Idols are made by people, so the ultimate God in an idolatrous system is man. Do not have any other gods next to me implies that man makes these gods. It also implies that there are other gods who might be put next to God. These other gods are men, the sons of God. Idolatry means putting men and their ideas, the false gods they generate, next to the true God. Perhaps that helps us a bit because when we think of idols, we probably think of little statues and bowing down to them, and that doesn't fit modern society in the same way it did in the ancient world. There are plenty of idolatrous ideas and philosophies which pervade our culture that also fall under this category. You know, pick any of the isms and you have idolatry, whether humanism, socialism, globalism, communism, etc. 
Or to quote another Calvin, the Calvin from Bill Watterson's comic, Calvin and Hobbes. In the first panel, Calvin is standing in his pajamas, holding a bowl with a spoon in it before the TV and declares, O greatest of the mass media, thank you for elevating emotion, reducing thought, and stifling imagination. He continues in the second panel, Thank you for the artificiality of quick solutions and for the insidious manipulation of human desires for commercial purposes. In the third frame, Calvin is bowing before the TV, the bowl placed upon the ground in front of it and says, This bowl of lukewarm tapioca represents my brain. I offer it in humble sacrifice. Bestow thy flickering light forever. And then the final frame is his mother, clearly half asleep, standing in front of the TV, which is on, the volume blaring, the bowl of tapioca still upon the ground, and a question mark over her head. (laughs) Perhaps we still bow down to idols, but they're more sophisticated now than they used to be. Well, let's hear the second word in verses 4 through 6. Not shall you make to yourself a carving or any likeness of what is in heaven above or what is in the earth beneath and what is in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them and you shall not serve them for I am Yahweh your God, a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers unto the sons, unto the third generation and unto the fourth generation of those hating me but showing covenant love to thousands, to those loving me and to those guarding my commandments. And the word for idol or image related to the verb is related to the verb to carve or to carve out or hew out. And immediately that brings to our minds probably like a piece of wood that could be carved. But the commandment doesn't just exclude wooden idols as though an idol cast of metal would be fine. No, all forms of idols and images are in view here. A graven image is one that is carved or cut. We even talk about an engraving, which is a cutting or design or writing onto something, whether stone, metal, or some other surface or substance. But what is interesting is that the word that God speaks here isn't the more typical word for idol that we might expect. So why use this particular term? Well, a case can be made that a man's graven image, uh, that man's graven images are to be While they're to be thoroughly rejected, the graven writing of the ten uh, words on the tablets of stone are to direct Israel's life and faith and worship. In Exodus 34, Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Also remember from Exodus 31 that the first set of the tablets were described as written with the finger of God. So there's this imagery of God's word engraved upon the stone tablets. Let's also be sure to note an important difference between these forms of carving. Man's engravings, his idols, are silent. God's engravings are of his words which he has spoken. The command put another way we could you know, think of it this way. You don't carve anything. Yahweh carved. You're to listen to what he carved. And underlying this is the principle that we walk by faith and not by sight, that the religion of the Bible, that Christianity is first and foremost a religion of the ear, of hearing God's word. You know, we, we've talked about this before, but hearing and authority are connected. Right now, I have a lot of authority. I have a lot of power. Because y'all are having to listen to me. And you may be able to close your eyes and not see me. But you can't close your ears. 
And be sure to note the progression that we find here in Exodus. God speaks first to the people at Sinai, and then he writes down the word that he spoke. But the speaking and the hearing come first. See, there's, there's an overwhelming primacy in Scripture placed upon hearing God's Word, even uh, significantly over reading it. You know, we're called to meditate upon God's Word. Reading is more of a post-Reformation development as a result of increased literacy in the printing press, etc. And I'm not telling you to stop reading your Bible. But understand that hearing God's Word, especially in the context of worship, is, even, is more important than your daily reading of the Bible. See, because when you, when you read the Bible, who's in control? You are. You can read what you want or what you don't want to. If you close your eyes, you can no longer read. If you shut your Bible, you can no longer read. So you're the one who's in control. When you come here and listen to the scriptures read during the service, are you in control? No, you have to submit to the reader, whether you like what he's reading or not. So Israel's called to listen, to hear, as we are. So no carvings, and how does God expand upon this? No likenesses of anything from the three-decker world that he's made, heaven, earth, or waters. And then this key qualifying statement, you shall not bow down to them, and you shall not serve them. Bowing down and serving are acts of worship. And so God is being quite clear that he is not to be worshipped through the medium of images. He is not to be worshipped through a likeness, a similitude or form, which is what the word used here means, uh, another somewhat rare word. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses relates to the people. Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the ten words, and he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. Then in the verses that follow, Moses gives a number of warnings against idolatry, which expands on the commands given here. As an aside, the the book of Deuteronomy is basically Moses' commentary on the ten words, on the ten commandments. So if you, you want to learn even more about them, that's a good place to go for further study. Also, uh, we should understand that that idols are seen as sharing in God's essence. That there's you know there's a part of Him, as it were, directly connected to the image. You know, like uh, like in voodoo, for instance. You know, you've probably seen something in a movie, TV show, or cartoon where the witch doctor or whomever has the voodoo doll, and they need something from the person, like a strand of hair or whatever, and then they're able to manipulate that person in some way or make them feel pain, etc. Well, it's kind of the same idea here, that there's this magical connection. But that necessarily implies that man has some measure of control, doesn't it? It's, that's a subtle implication, but it's there. And be sure to pay attention to the fact that also connected to the second word is some of the strongest, if not the strongest language condemning sin in the ten words. For I am Yahweh your God, a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers unto the sons, unto the third and third generation, unto the fourth generation of those hating me. First of all, notice that Yahweh is a jealous God, that he's a jealous husband for his bride, and that's a good thing. Jealousy, which is not to be confused with envy, can be a good thing and a perfectly appropriate response. If Yahweh is jealous for his bride, then that means idolatry constitutes a form of spiritual adultery. 
In Exodus 32, we see this principle applied in the golden apps in the golden calf episode. And what does Moses do when he goes back down the mountain? When Yahweh tells them what tells him what Israel's doing, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. See, this mirrors the jealousy test, the test for adultery that we find in Numbers five. Yahweh's the jealous husband, and Israel is the bride that he makes drink this this bitter water. Secondly, and pay especially close attention here, idolatry is equated with hating God. That's what the text is saying. Those who worship God through images hate God. They might not have a mental attitude of hatred toward God, but in an objective covenantal sense, they are guilty of hating God. Again, this is strong language, even fearful language. And given the fact that the scriptures speak to our tendencies and that there are so many admonitions in relation to idolatry, then we should understand how prone we are to this sin and why God uses such strong language about it. I think it's worth noting the the particular verb forms that we find here. Those hating me. Uh, It's a participial verb form. So it reflects ongoing actions, a a lifestyle, if you will, of idolatry. But then there's also mercy lined within these words, as strong as they are, because God's visiting the iniquity, the twistedness, means he's paying attention to it and observes it and holds them accountable for it, but it's not indefinite. There's a limit. It's three or four generations, which shouldn't be taken lightly. You know, the effects will be felt to their grandkids and great-grandkids. But then notice the contrast. But showing, literally doing, but showing covenant love to thousands, to those loving me and those keeping my commandments. Covenant love, steadfast love, loving kindness. You know, the word is hesed. We, we could even render it promised grace. This is shown to thousands. Again, participles are used. Loving me and guarding or keeping my commandments. The word for guarding or keeping, as we've run into it before, he's always describing those who love him by following his orders. And they don't simply do them, but they stand for his words, promote them, and rebuke those who do not. And while there might be a wider application to all of God's commands, keep in mind that the loving and guarding is directly related to the second word against idolatry. And in doing so, there are profound and lasting blessings for innumerable generations. Now, it's necessary that we consider how the second word relates to other branches of the church, particularly in their practice that involve icons and such in worship. And so that there isn't any doubt as to what I think or what I think you should think, let me be clear. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and some high church Anglicans are in violation of the second commandment through the use of icons and pictures in worship, in bowing down to them, and even how some of them treat the body of Christ in the supper. And given what we've just learned about the second commandment, we are right to conclude that these parts of the church objectively hate God through these idolatrous practices. Now bear in mind what we stated a few minutes ago. They don't necessarily have a mental attitude of hatred toward God, And I am certain many of them believe their worship of God is enhanced, that is a greater act of devotion, but that is not what the Bible teaches. And given this strong position that we're taking, the question naturally, questions naturally arise. Well, are Catholics and Orthodox Christians? 
Should we treat them as unbelievers? To which I would answer, no, we should not treat them as unbelievers. And we should follow the lead of the reformers here who treated their baptisms as valid, but their practices as corrupted by idolatry. To worship Yahweh, to worship Jesus through an image, is to worship a false god. Now, someone might object and say, but Jesus was a man. He took on flesh and blood and bones, and the apostles and thousands of others saw him. And there had been cameras back then, and they could have taken his picture. That's true. I don't contend uh, that the second commandment doesn't prohibit art, as in the case with, um, with Islam, nor do I think it prohibits religious art or even art in a religious environment. You know, the tabernacle and temple were filled with art. So the stark Puritan churches and chapels are not the epitome of worship space, uh, epitome of worship space in keeping with the second commandment. Nor do I think that pictures of Jesus are necessarily prohibited under the second commandment, even though they're probably pretty inaccurate, or they only portray a particular aspect of Jesus' character. You know, if you think about the kind of evangelical art that we might find in a Christian bookstore, Jesus is always calm and serene, and there are these idyllic portrayals of him, but you never see Jesus arguing with religious leaders or angry at unbelief. He probably looks like a hippie, Although maybe that's changed some as we've gotten farther away from the 60s and 70s. But he's all about love and peace, man. You know, of course, it's not a good idea to put a big picture of Jesus right behind the pulpit for people to gaze upon through the service, even if it is of him crushing the serpent's head. The the, the picture is static. It doesn't change and is limited in what it can communicate. What do you often find front and center in a Roman Catholic church? A crucifix with Jesus still on it. See, that's a reflection of their theology that Jesus is re-sacrificed every time the Eucharist is celebrated. And what kind of Jesus is staring down at you through that service? A suffering one. Well, that has an impact on how you worship. It shapes your thinking and your piety. shapes your theology. Back to the main point at hand. Bowing down to any artifact, anything that is man-made, whether a picture of Jesus or an icon or a picture of a saint or Mary, is an act of hatred toward God. Let's talk about icons for a few moments, which are prevalent in the Eastern Orthodox Church. What's the problem here? Well, the obvious use of images, but what, what about the idea that they're just aids for worship? Well, that's partially Aaron's argument in Exodus 32. These are your gods. Tomorrow we feast to Yahweh. You know, the the golden calf wasn't some other god per se. And yet God's furious and ready to completely wipe out Israel and start a new nation from Moses because of this sin. Or consider Jeroboam's actions in 1 Kings 12 when he sets up the golden calves in Dan and Bethel and basically repeats Aaron's words, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Keep reading in Kings, and you know what a disaster that was, and the idolatry, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is the, is the refrain you hear over and over again through First and Second Kings. And the, the, the idolatry and corruption of the whole, um, the whole uh, northern kingdom of Israel that he brought. Now, we should understand that while the people are guilty for following Jeroboam in this idolatry, he has the greater sin, knowing exactly what he's doing in a disobedience to God. Also think about this. Images of saints or Jesus, um, how are they portrayed? Typically, it's just their face or their torso, and they're not doing anything. And sure, there's symbolism in it, and we might consider some of it to be good art or interesting to study, but it has no place in worship. 
Furthermore, making prayers to the saints, prayers to icons or pictures of saints. There's, there's no biblical evidence that they hear the prayers. You know, does that saint talk back? Can that image communicate anything? No, if the worshiper perceives any form of communication, it's only what he or she already believes or knows. The image doesn't talk back. It doesn't talk. If it does, there's a much more serious issue. Now, what images of God do talk back? Well, other people, other Christians, which is life in the church and rubbing elbows with one another. But you don't pray to other Christians, but they can pray for you to Jesus. Based on that logic, can you ask saints to pray for you? Well, back to the point previously made. There's no biblical evidence that the departed saints can even hear us. You know, the only thing that I know in the Bible that comes close is the story of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man calls out to Abraham from the torment of Hades. That's the only prayer to a saint that I'm aware of. And it comes from Hades, comes from hell. I don't think I'd want to construct a theology of prayers to the saints from that example. Still more, the use of icons in worship in Eastern Orthodoxy is a natural outworking of their Pelagian theology, which denies predestination, denies original sin, and so these man-made images and icons are part of their working to save themselves on their own terms. See, who initiates salvation in the Pelagian model? Man does. But what does the Bible teach? That God initiates salvation. That God speaks first. Go see Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Still more, the religion of the Bible is a religion of the ear and not the eye. Which doesn't mean that we can't have beautiful sanctuaries with stained glass windows, with biblical scenes, perhaps even portraying Jesus' particular scenes. But they wouldn't be front and center. and wouldn't be bowing down to them or kissing them. At least I hope not. What's more, the, the Bible is history and it recounts Jesus in history. And we are right to think about Jesus walking on water and healing people and holding children and driving out the buyers and sellers and so forth. That's good and right. But what do images and icons do? They take Jesus or they take the saint out of history and they put him in this ethereal setting which coincides with Greek philosophical thought such as you find in Socrates and Plato where the body is holding you back. And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised to find Greek thinking in the Greek branches of the church. One theologian made the interesting observation that Islam is God's scourge to idolatrous Christianity. Islam arose around 600 to 700 AD at the same time when the Eastern churches became full of icons and the councils defended icons, particularly the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which wasn't really ecumenical, that also then mandated the use of icons. What does Islam believe? No pictures, no art at all. And the Muslims conquered Constantinople and Greece and parts of Russia, particularly the stands, where there's an Islamic presence to this day. What's the answer? Get rid of the idols and watch God bless that and then watch Islam diminish, diminish or disappear. But what about in the West? You know, arguably Islam hasn't made as significant inroads here, which may be debated somewhat. But what have we largely faced? Humanism, which is God's scourge for ideological Christianity. 
false words and ideas have been set up and bowed down to or set up in front of God's face or human traditions or these like these types of things are competing for our faith. We'll speak more to this, Lord willing, next week with the third commandment. But there's, there's God plus. There's the Bible plus. And this has been going on, arguably, well, at least since the Enlightenment, as many of the heresies related to humanism are Christian heresies. You know, they take, they take an aspect of truth and then they twist it. So then what's the answer for us? We need to be serious about the Scriptures, hearing them, knowing them, singing them, especially the Psalms, and being thoroughly saturated in God's Word, trusting it's the foundation for restructuring of society in every area of life. See, the, the second commandment is profoundly important for culture and civilization. And all of creation is set before us for our use, and we're not to be driven by superstition regardless of how sophisticated it might seem. These, these first two words establish the fact that God dictates how He's to be worshipped. And He's clear that there are to be no other gods before His face and no images used as aids to worship. And as we faithfully pursue obedience to His words, we can expect lasting blessings. He doesn't pull them away. He doesn't limit them, but supplies them to thousands to those loving Him and guarding His commandments. Let us pray. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. By Your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are Your servants. Grant us a greater love and zeal for obedience to Your Word, we pray. Direct us and strengthen us in greater faithfulness to You and to your commandments and to your words. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may we be directed in our faithfulness to you in obedience to your word. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.